I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, and we've all made it to Friday. Uh, apart from you, Prime Minister, obviously. Uh, right, coming up on the podcast today, we move on to the leadership contest. Who is backing who? And how do you not muck it up? Uh, Henry Seffman talks us through the runners and riders, and then two people who've worked on previous Tory election campaigns tell us about the looming pitfalls. That's coming up in just a moment. We'll have the columnists in just a sec, but first, let's take a look at all of the many things we learned this week. We learned that our dog Poppy's the most gorgeous girl at the dog show. We learned that Dominic Raab doesn't know what Stig Abel's name is. Sorry, Chris. Uh, sorry, Tom. The, the, Stig, the don't worry. This is Stig. We learned that Boris Johnson felt he was irresponsible to change Prime Minister now, so he did the irresponsible thing and resigned. We learned that Nadim Zahawi uh, knows exactly who is to blame for all this. The people who are egging us on, uh, you know, get rid of our leader and, and, and have this, this bloodletting in battle, are people like Alistair Campbell. Yes, it's Alistair Campbell. Then even Zahawi himself was egged on by Alistair Campbell using treasury-headed notepaper for the first and possibly last time as Chancellor to call for the Prime Minister to resign while not doing the same himself. We learned that James Dudridge's wife really doesn't like Piers Morgan. I'm happy to answer questions from you. My wife would divorce me if I took questions from Piers Morgan. We learned that Suella Braverman is running. If there is a leadership contest, I will put my name into the ring. And we learned that her colleague, Tory MP Steve Vine, isn't keen. Suella, Suella Braverman has. You're not, you're not on her campaign? I, 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 I think I'll just let the tumbleweed blow through uh, Parliament Square uh, as, you, as you say that. We learned that the long-running beef between Boris Johnson and Michael Gove still had the power to deliver... A major capital letters big news story. ...when Boris Johnson fired Michael Gove for telling him to do what he ended up doing. We learned that Boris Johnson's got very big hands... We're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls. Uh, the latest YouGov poll puts the Tories 11 points behind Labour. He said it was eccentric to, eccentric to change Prime Minister now, and then was going just fine. But, you know, as they say... Them's the brakes. Them's the brakes, indeed. That is what we learned this week. Now, as it's Friday, it's time for this. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Oh, what will we possibly find to talk about? Good morning, James Forsyth. Hey Matt, how you doing? I'm not bad at all. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, Matt. Listen, I'm worried about you chaps. You must be suffering from <laughs> nervous exhaustion. <laughs> well, I saw James at a party last night and I suspect that whatever he's suffering from is very similar to me. And it's, it, what, what do we always say, 30% self-inflicted, James? 
I, I think the adrenaline is sufficiently high that, that I, I'm, gonna, I'm sure I will crash later. There's a crash coming. There's a crash coming. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like looking at Barber Boom, I think, at the moment this morning. Um, James, um, uh, one of the main topics of conversation I've had with lots of people this week, particularly sort of younger lobby reporters who, who have been very excited, obviously, but have been asking, is, it, is, this, is this really as good as it... Has there ever been a day like this? And I've been in Westminster now for 17 years. And definitely this week is the most extraordinary thing I've seen. Is the same true for you? Uh, I think this week, the speed with which it moved uh, was remarkable. And it was just kind of... I remember the spectator was kind of running a live blog. And on on, uh, Thursday... uh, uh, morning, I kind of gave up because I was trying to kind of blog each resignation. There'd been four by seven thirty, right? And like every time you'd finished and filed, another one dropped, and you were like, "What is this ending?" <laughs> um, uh, and and it became clear, I think, that, that 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 he was undone. And it and it is a it is remarkable the speed with which it happened. But I think it was also because people knew that the kind of foundations were so shaky. If you see what I mean. But that sped the process up too. Melanie, as our resident normal person, um, <laughs> uh, how how have you sort of witnessed, uh, endured, enjoyed, got through this week? It has been compulsive viewing, listening. I mean, I have had, you know, I've had my husband has been on the on the t. He's had the TV on, full stop. He's been glued to the TV. I've been in the ra- in the kitchen listening to you on the radio. And, and it's, and then, and then it's Twitter. I mean, you, it's compulsive stuff. You cannot, you cannot escape from it. It, 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 yeah, it's the best soap opera ever invented. It really is. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, it, uh, there was probably a sort of an air of inevitable. Is it it's sort of weird now to think back? What was it? Tuesday, Rishi Sunak resigned. You know, Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak resigned. It, there was an air of inevitability, but he just made very heavy weather of it, uh, uh, James. Um, let's let's look ahead then. Uh, who do you think right now is is best place to replace Boris Johnson? Well, I think Tory leadership races are always more like the Grand National and the Derby, and I think this one is an exceptionally open race. And um, Someone last night was saying, oh, come on, Johan, you must know who's going to make the final two. You know, I'd ask a racing journalist for tips. And it did remind me of when I asked a racing journalist for tips on the Grand National. They, they gave me the names of two horses that they were sure would make it all the way round, probably to bat them each way. So I dutifully shoved 20 quid on them each way, and they both they fell at the first and second fence, respectively. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so I, I think we've kind of all due humility, one should, one should acknowledge this. I, I, I think we wait. I think that what the thing I would say is, momentum is going to be hugely important because the parliamentary process is so concertina so that MPs can get it done before the summer recess, right? That, you know, you're not going to have time to build. And so whoever starts strongly is going to have a massive advantage. And then the second thing I would say is transferability is going to be one of the key qualities that you will need. You will need to be able to pick up votes from uh, people from all people who back different candidates from different wings of the party. So who is acceptable across the broad stream of the party is going to become really important. And I think, you know, I think if you'd asked me a week ago, I would have said that Nadim Zahawi was on a, a very good place in terms of transferability. I mean, the problem for him is that he hasn't had a great 72 hours. And I think that has dented his ability to do that. I, I think Ben Wallace 
status must be regarded as a favourite in the, you know, all the surveys show that if he makes it to the membership round, he wins and wins comfortably. But the remarkable thing is, um, no one knows what Ben Wallace thinks about domestic policy, which is, which is in some ways a strength in that people can project onto him whatever they, they wish to. But it also means that when he does talk about domestic policy, he's going to do, um, then that is, that is going to be hugely important what Tory MPs hear when he says that. And what about uh, you, Melanie? In particular, the, the, the Conservatives' issues in Scotland. Uh, you know, but Boris. Well, it was, it was an SNP MP this week said um, they, they wanted Boris Johnson to stay because he was basically the best recruiting agent for uh, for for independence. Who is there? Anyone that you've seen talked about so far who you think might go down well in Scotland? Where you are? Uh, frankly, no. Uh, I mean, the, the the Tories are just it's it, they're so toxic. It's uh, Ben Wallace, I suppose, has uh, yeah it, it, that touch of the clean skin, but um, I, I, you know, can I just say that from a distance, from a distance, out with uh, you know, looking in, that, that what what is astonishing is that we are witnessing a Conservative Party still being torn apart by Brexit, still, still riven right, right between the right, the right centre, between uh, you know the. the Profoundly disunited with you've got, you know, this sort of militant wing, the ERG and, and just at a, just at a time when there is this, this, this enormous sense of jeopardy in the country, um, with normal people trying to, trying to, to find a way through normal life, they, they still haven't got over Brexit. I mean, it, to me, it, it, it's, it is extraordinary that they seem to be still bogged down in this ground. And yet the rest of the country, is, including the Labour Party, seems to have moved on and said, OK, OK, you know, we accept it. We're, we're going to live with it. But, uh, I mean, what, what is it with Brexit that is doing? Yeah, it, what, why, why, can they, why can they not get out of the swamp? Do you think that's right, James? Do you, do you think that who did or didn't back Brexit will play a part in the contest? I think it's certainly easier if you are a Brexiteer to win. Because I think it is a kind of, uh, it, it offers reassurance to Tory members. I think the next big question is who can offer the best prospectus on how to take advantage of, of Brexit. And you know, what I think this is, I think the kind of the fundamental challenge at the moment, which is the kind of odd thing about the Johnson government, is that it, it, it in inverted commas, it got Brexit done, but then it did very little with the new powers that it had. Um, and then the kind of question is, what, who, who has got an agenda to use Brexit to make this country more competitive? And um, because I think, you know, at the moment, what we've done is we've left the EU, and, but are still doing things in basically the same way as we were before, and that's not going to work. Um, but I suppose one of the, the at some point the, the party has to move on. Jeremy, if this it does end up being well, we can't have Jeremy Hunt because he back remained six years ago. Uh, but then, or, or is it about the fact? I mean, I suppose Liz Truss has sort of reinvented herself as a Brexiteer despite having backed Remain. Yeah, um, and I think, but I think, I think, I think Jeremy Hunt's problem is actually people just don't like being asked to make the same choice again, right? Yes. Um, yeah, 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 and. But the, the, I think the issue with Jeremy Hunt is you were basically asking Tory members to say, well, in 2019, we offered you this. 
we're now going to bring it back and offer it to you again in 2022 and we hope you'll take it this time. I, I think that is the cycle. You know, I mean, it, this is Lenny Finkelstein's territory, not mine, but I mean, that's the psychological challenge for people with Jeremy Hunt, right? It's like a blood feud, you know? It's like, it's like <laughs> somebody, fell out, somebody fell out at somebody's wedding, you know, seven years ago and they're still not talking to each other and they still can't sit down and work together and, 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 and have spent Christmases together. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, we've, everyone else is, 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 is getting on with it. Um, and intellectually, they intellectually sort of emotionally, the, the, the conservative party is still, they're still sort of, uh, stabbing each other. It, 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 on a, they can't it, really remember what started it, but they just, they just know they're not speaking yeah. to each other. And James, you've yeah. written, let's talk about um, uh, that's sort of what's going to happen to the Tory party next. What about what happens to Boris Johnson next? And you've written in your column today about, I mean, Boris Johnson is sort of the great creator of myths of, of his own, uh, you know, writing his own uh, story. And you said the Tories need to need to sort of um, quash those those myths in, in order to move on. Yeah, I think the danger is, and you saw this in his resignation speech, that Boris Johnson is, is crafting this, 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 this tale of the great undefeated leader brought down by panicking parliamentary pygmies. And I think this is, this is, this is, this is the, you know, the history he intends to write, and it will be very kind to him. I think the choice was <laughs> you have to kind of remember that that is not correct. Um, and that, you know, I think in some ways there were various grandees who said to me during the week, look, actually it would be better to go to the no-confidence ballot because that would reveal that you know, it's not some small clique bringing him down. It's the fact that 80% plus of the parliamentary party have lost confidence in him. And, and I suppose the, the, because he's, if he's got any, anything about him, it is an ability to uh, you know, use his oratory to, to reshape, to change people's minds, to yeah. tell a story. And, you know, yeah. he, he doesn't, t- he, he, the story he tells is never better than when he's telling it about himself. Do you, do you think it's partly him also trying to convince himself because he's just not someone who's going to accept that he's done anything wrong? Yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought, it was in, I thought in the resignation speech it was quite telling, but there was, that you know, he talked about um, the decision to get rid of him being eccentric. He talked about the herd. I think you know, there was no, I'm sorry that it's come to this kind of, vibe to this i think i think this is and i think i think one of the reasons why it took him so long to accept the game was up was he kind of his kind of view as well as turned against me so quickly it could turn back as quick equally quickly in my favor without realizing that there were kind of fundamental reasons why people had turned it's a great it's yeah. a it's a great point in the melody it's that lack of self-awareness which it, it's actually quite distressing you know <laughs> it really is <laughs> I mean, you know, he just doesn't, he really doesn't get it. Um, and I mean, there, there, you know, there's even some suggestions, I don't know if they're true or not, but that, that, that he, he might even think he could make a comeback. Well, that was, the, mean, that was the most shocking thing on the show yesterday. Andrew Jimson, who's one of Boris Johnson's biographers, said that he, 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 he wouldn't rule out him thinking he could be Disraeli and he could come back in the future. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, it's, this is magnificent, magnificently awful stuff. It's it's, it's compulsive. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you know, it 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 it's it, I, I, it. To me, what summed it up this morning was the 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 stuff, the leaked 
the leaked invoice in, in, in the independent newspaper about all the internal uh, decorations that he'd had done in Downing Street. And I mean, we've, we've all been calling it wallpaper gate because we thought it was about gold wallpaper. But in fact, it should about been a, it should be called drinks, drinks trolley gate because it, the, the best bit of this was the, the Nureyev, a, a Nureyev drinks trolley, which cost £3,765. I, I, I mean, there's a pic, the Daily Mail have got a picture on their website. And it's just this horrible little tacky gilt hostess trolley but <laughs> with, with those grotty little wheels on it and little handles at the back that you, you would – I mean, I got two of them for my wedding when I got married first time in, 19, in 1983. And you just threw them in the bin immediately. They are I, – I, oh, I don't know. It, 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 it's uh, – Well, if it, you'd have hung on to it, you could have sold it to Carrie for, for three grand. <laughs> James Forsyth and Melanie read there. And, of course, you can read James every Friday in The Times and Melanie every Saturday in The Saturday Magazine. You read my column as well in The Times every Saturday. Uh, this week, I take a full look at the runners and writers, uh, which is what we'll do on the podcast next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. And they're off. It beats the Grand National for a wide open field of toothy huffers that should long ago have been turned into glue. But in the big thing today, we're going to take a look at the key runners and riders for the Tory leadership. Who's backing who? What hurdles they need to get over? And some advice from history on how not to fall. Our man in the stands with the binoculars closely watching the race is Henry Zeffman. Times is associate political editor. Morning, Henry. Good morning, Matt. Uh, give us the broad picture of the race, first of all. Uh, how, how big a race is it, it, <laughs> do you think we're looking at? Well, I, I mean... It's hard to beat, James, besides the Grand National analogy. I mean, I think, if I remember rightly, the Grand National has 40 runners. I don't think we're going to quite hit that 
tally, though it's certainly true that at least 40 Conservative MPs will have looked in the mirror last night and thought that they saw a future prime minister. Um, but some of them will be shaken out of their delusions quicker than others. But look, I mean, it's a sprawling field for now, at least. Uh, but the fascinating dimension to it this time is how quickly Conservative MPs are determined, partly by necessity, to winnow it down to two. So uh, it's a sprawling field, but 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 they're going to get you know taken out really quickly. Okay, let's. Uh, um, you, you mentioned there was a certain amount of delusion. The number of people who are throwing their hats into the ring. I don't know if you saw this morning, Mark Jenkinson, the uh, Conservative MP for Workington, uh, tweeted, "I've sought counsel from those I can trust to blow smoke up my ass." That, when weighed against my own inflated sense of self-importance, leads me to conclude that I should throw my hat into the ring and stand for election as leader of the Conservatives and Unionist Party. Over the next six months, I'll be available to promise you the moon on a stick. Ask it and it shall be yours. Let me worry about how I deal with three chancellors and a cabinet of 160. It's having the answer to those questions that makes me the most suitable candidate. Um, uh, which is a pretty uh, damning indictment on the number of his colleagues who have uh, suggested it might be one. Let's start with the the front runners before we get into the uh, the, um, the the unlikely uh, uh, horses. Um, Henry, uh, who do you put at the moment as being ahead in this the, in the very early stages of this race? Well, I think like any conservative leadership election, it's hard to look past the people who've held the highest offices. So I think that means Rishi Sunak the former Chancellor. I think that means Sajid Javid, the even more former Chancellor. That means Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, There's some question marks, but it might mean Nadim Zahawi, the other Chancellor. Uh, So uh, I think you're looking at, oh, and of course, sorry, of course, without question, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. So, you know, there's definitely space for someone to come from the back of the pack. But at the moment, if you just ask me to make the sort of most basic of predictions, you ha- it, it, it is tricky to look past the people who've held the highest of offices. Um, let's talk about uh, Rishi Sunak, because he's been talked as a future leader for, for a very long time in, uh, in sort of Westminster terms, not least because of his popularity uh, when, uh, he, you know, during the early stages of the pandemic and he was giving everyone eat out to help out and furlough and whatever else. Um, he seemed to have been written off earlier in the year in the revelations about his non-dom status and well, his wife and, and all of that. Do you think people were too quick to write him off? Well, look, I mean, it was a very bad episode for him and it's probably why he's not prime minister already. Um, but look, I mean, one very influential former cabinet minister said to me the other day, well, Yes, all of that stuff's bad, but crucially, it's out there now and people know about it, which means it's not going to come out during a leadership election. Whereas some of the slightly less tested uh, candidates, including cabinet ministers, uh, you don't know what might come out with the extra scrutiny that a leadership campaign imposes. So, uh, look, it's it's tricky for Sunak. I mean, I think what's more tricky for Sunak than his wife being a non-dom uh, is that he got fined for Downing Street parties. Now, Uh, I think it was sort of fairly widely, though definitely not universally, thought that his fine seemed a little bit harsh, especially when the photos came out that made it look like the most boring, tragic birthday party in in British history. (laughs) Which he didn't even know. I mean, he's such a nerd. He just turned up early to a meeting. Well, that's going to have to be his answer, right? I mean, I think that's the way he's going to have to play it, is he's going to have to say, look, uh, I, I got fined by accident when I thought I was turning up to a meeting to combat coronavirus. And that just shows what a sensible and serious candidate I would be for 
times which require a serious and sensible person or something like that. Um, but it is something he's going to have to have an answer to because, you know, let's not forget, Chris Pincher, amazingly, was the final straw which did it for Conservative MPs uh, in getting rid of Boris. Uh, but Partygate was a huge part of that. And um, that's because Boris Johnson is the first prime minister to have been, uh, you know, convicted, as it were, of, 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 of breaking laws. And Rishi Sunak, who's going to run to succeed him, also got exactly the same fine for exactly the same... Uh, event. Cool, then let's go inside the campaigns. And everybody, everyone's got this great big long list of of possible uh, runners and riders, but who who's in whose camp? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's still a little bit embryonic. I mean, as you heard from Philip Dunn earlier, uh, you know, you're going to get this slightly ridiculous thing where everyone knows that Jeremy Hunt's running. Everyone knows that Philip Dunn is going to back him, if not run his campaign, but he has to pretend. I mean, I'm not completely clear why he has to pretend, but he's decided to pretend because it's tradition. That, oh, he's going to have to look at the runners and riders, etc. Um, I much preferred um, Alex Shelbrook, uh, who's a, a backbencher on LBC yesterday. Uh, it was, oh, well, on another talk radio, much inferior talk radio uh, uh, channel, a station yesterday. Uh, he was asked, he said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, beat about the bush here. I'm backing Liz Truss, and yes, of course she's running. She asked me ages ago if I'd support her. Um, I think that's a much more honest way to go about things. Anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying we don't necessarily know who's running everyone's campaigns. I mean, let's t- let's start with Rishi Sunak though. Um, I mean, he is going to have a very senior role, I'm told, played by Oliver Dowden, who you have to say, by the way, completely nailed the politics of this by resigning from Boris Johnson's cabinet a couple of weeks ago. He clearly was. Uh, well ahead of others in realising how untenable uh, his position was, even if he didn't necessarily think it was all going to be brought down by Chris Pincher in the Carlton Club uh, just a matter of days later. But Oliver Dowden's going to play a big part in his campaign. He's also got some some junior MPs who you wouldn't necessarily have heard of who are linchpins. There's a woman called Claire Coutinho, who was elected in 2019 uh, for a southern seat, um, whose name now escapes me. She was actually his spad when he was Chief Secretary of the Treasury before the 2019 election. Uh, so they go back a long way. Um, and 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 look, I mean, I think several people who work with Rishi Sunak at the Treasury, I think a guy called Craig Williams, a Welsh MP, who was Sunak's PPS for a bit, um, he'll be in there. But I think, I think Sunak's best bet is to become a juggernaut. And so if he's the juggernaut candidate, people will just flock to him, as they did to Theresa May in 2016 and as they did to Boris Johnson in 2019. So... You know, it may well be that very quickly you find that Sunak's core team incorporates people who two weeks ago perhaps were quite willing to <laughs> brief against him off the record to each of us. Um, uh, and what about the other, I mean, at the other end of the, ta- of the table, your Steve Bakers, your Sweller Bravermans uh, uh, um, and others. Um, have they got any realistic chance? Is it just attention seeking, as their colleague Mark Jenkins has said? Or is it an attempt to try and leverage some sort of cabinet job from whoever does win? It doesn't always work, that. It doesn't always work. I mean, you know, Mark Harper got eight or nine votes or something like that um, in the 2019 leadership election and and isn't in the cabinet and um, just sort of kept campaigning against Boris Johnson for about three years afterwards. Um, (laughs) And it's a shame because that that election campaign uh, back in... uh... 
20, was it 2019 when he ran? 20, no, yeah, yeah 2019 when he ran that. It's time for a party where everyone is invited. Uh, easily the best leadership cam- campaign slogan. Well, and, and almost like a prophecy of what was going to happen in Downing Street afterwards, just <laughs> with him as prime minister. Uh, but anyway, uh, where were we? Yeah, I mean, look, some of those campaigns will, will not make it onto the first ballot. Some of them will probably not even run. I mean, you know, in 2019, 10 candidates made it onto the first ballot, but that's not even counting Sam Gima, uh, Kit Malthouse, James Cleverly, um, who, uh, you know, said they were going to run and then ended up realising it wasn't a goer. So, look, I can understand if you're an ambitious MP, you know, you might as well say you're considering it and perhaps some MPs will flock to you, um, in which case, you know, get going and perhaps they won't. In which case, you've not necessarily lost lost much, except for perhaps a little bit of dignity. So, um, you know, I, 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 look, I think, I think, I think, Suella Braverman. Actually, I must say, uh, I was very struck by how seriously some MPs who I didn't think would take her seriously are taking her. However, um, there is a, I think, an even larger number of MPs who um, recoil at the prospect. But look, that doesn't mean she won't do quite well. And you know, by which I mean make it to the second ballot or so. And then, yeah, of course, she'll get a cabinet job afterwards from whoever's prime minister. So that's probably the goal. Um, and do we know, just in terms of the, the, the timings, um, 1922 committee going to meet next week to sort of set the, the exact timetable for, for this. What, what are you hearing about how quickly they can rattle through the whittling process uh, to, so, you know, to get it out to the vote? And then we might actually get a winner. Well, there's a hard stop deadline at the end of it. I mean, they want to they want to have a final two by the 21st, which is, you know, two weeks yesterday, uh, because that's when the House of Commons rises for its summer recess and perish the thought that they would keep uh, considering who should be Britain's next prime minister into their summer break. Um, So uh, that 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 gives you a sort of um, uh, a hard stop against which they they will. But so. what do we know? The the 1922 committee is still having its executive elections, which for a few days felt seismically important, but are a bit less so now on Monday. Um, straight afterwards, they will meet to confirm the rules and timetable for the contest. Um, I think that probably means we'll have the first ballot on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, last time I seem to remember the ballots were on Tuesdays and Thursdays until they were done. I wonder if they'll just do them every single day or every single weekday until they're done this time. Now, the usual process is that you will need a certain number of MPs. Last time it was 10. This time we think it might be 20, again, because of time, to make it onto the first ballot. Uh, those aren't votes. Those are just people who are willing to sign then sign your nomination papers. So you might end up with fewer votes than that. Um, then after that, the rule is the candidate who comes last gets eliminated uh, and you keep going until you have a final two. Um, and some people might drop out along the way. Uh, this time we're hearing they might impose percentage thresholds in each round. So, you know, in the first round, as well as not coming last, you would have to get, say, 10% of the votes in order to make it to the second round. But then in the second round, this is one idea during the rounds I stress, it's not definitely going to happen. In the second round, you would need 15% of the votes and not to come last and so on and so on. So, so really, sort of... really, really ratchet it and force uh, exactly. So things could move. So although we might start the week with what a dozen contenders, we could get to the end of the week and actually only have three or four possibly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Henry Zeffman, Times Associate Political Editor, is still with me. He's talked us through the process of what unfolds this week. But how do you, 
How do you win in a, a leadership contest? How do you not muck it up? I'm joined now by Kate Ford, Baroness Fall, who is Deputy Chief of Staff for David Cameron. Morning, Kate. Good morning. Uh, we've also got Ian Anderson, uh, now Executive Chairman at Cicero Ammo, uh, but was part of Ken Clark's leadership campaign. Morning, Ian. Good morning, Matt. Which which campaign or campaigns did you do for Ken? I mean, it's a sort of con- it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame he'll be missing from this one. It's a sort of constitutional tradition that Ken Clark enters Tory leadership campaigns. Well, I was almost tempted to WhatsApp him. I don't think Ken's actually on WhatsApp, Matt, but um, uh, give him a text last night and say, go on, it's going to be a wide field. Um, you like placing a bet on. Uh, why not give it a go? But no, I don't think Ken's going to give it a go. But no, I was involved in 97 more fundamentally in 2001, which was the first campaign, um, if you remember, when William Hague changed the rules, where we actually went into the country and then again briefly in, in 2005, when, yeah, all three times we lost handsomely. And why is that? How? Uh, why? Because Kent Clark actually very popular with the public, but just less so with his party. So, what did he do wrong? Uh, you know, he's holder of some of the greatest of great officers of state, and so on. What did he do wrong? So, uh, look, um, the joy about Ken is he's totally uh, unspinnable. Um, the <laughs> frustration about Ken is he was totally. Unspinnable. I remember going into the the Newsnight studio. Can you believe this now? Um, 2001, first ever leadership debate for any party head to head between Ken and, and IDS. And we said to Ken uh, back in Westminster, look, if Ian Duncan Smith talks about Europe, Ken wasn't necessarily in the right place on Europe, as we know from many Conservative members. Just talk about education, talk about health, talk about the roads, talk about anything, Ken, other than Europe. He said, yes, I've got it. Don't worry, I've completely got it. Went into the studio. I went into the green room, looked at a rather rank bottle of BBC wine, wasn't planning to touch it. And before we even got going, Ken said, "Uh, just a minute. I need to take just issue with what Ian said about what I said about Europe. I drank the entire bottle of wine. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, so that's how not to do it. So, Kate Fall, how did David Cameron win in 2005? Because it was quite a shock, that. Yes. I mean, he'd only been an MP for one term, so it was seen as a sort of audacious, um, a a sort of getting, getting to raise his profile rather than necessarily becoming prime minister. But look, leadership elections are about sort of, in a way, what the party didn't want from the last prime minister. So there's a sense of correction. With David Cameron, you know, we we lost the elections in in the row. And what they didn't want was a status quo. They didn't want, you know, they didn't want in the end David Davis. They wanted a game changer. And so they were willing to take a risk. I think now, I think the difference is, is that people just want a restoration of sort of dignity and integrity at the heart, competent government. Um, and, and yet an election is near enough for you to be thinking, is this, is this new prime minister going to win again? So, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you, David Cameron won because he set out his stall for being a game changer. And also we were told, and it, it's a bit of a thing in the party that you sort of flirt right when you try and win a leadership. And then when you win, you sort of restore a sort of sense of gravity and move to the centre. We didn't actually do that with that campaign with David Cameron. We set out our school very firmly in the centre ground. And the polls, see, you know, like responded to that. And, and the party thought, well, we want, we want to win again. So, so that they went for a winner. I suppose that's the difference. Is what we're talking about, actually in both cases, with the 
in Duncan Smith years and, and also the David Cameron winning was it was in opposition to sort of reboot the party and try and get in, into government. Let's, let's just take a listen, actually. We're talking about David Davis. It was back in 2005. David Davis, you know, long-standing former minister, former whip and so on, uh, he was seen as the front runner. Along comes David Cameron yeah. as the challenger. I, this was David Davis uh, speaking to me just a few weeks ago about that contest. Why didn't I win? Well, because I screwed it up. I mean, the um, well, I, I made a bad speech about the conference, yeah. right? That was that was an organisational problem or anything else. I just tried to do too much. So my, I only really saw my speech the night night before in the morning. So it wasn't properly rehearsed. All that. So that that gave a trigger for the turn, right? Also, there is there is a systemic thing here. The the favourites almost never win, you know. And part of the reason is that your profession gets bored with the favourites, you know. I mean, just so you're, I mean, people watching your or listening to this will not remember this. But at the time, I was so far ahead that the bookies shut the books on me, you know. To be fair to David, you know, he was a fresh face. He came up with some new ideas. Tories were desperate to find a new formula to win, you know. So basically, he struck the right chord. And sometimes that's really interesting that uh, the the point that um, uh, David Davis is making there, uh, Kate. In the a, the single one of the big turning points was he made a duff speech, and actually when you're, uh, you know, particularly in this contest where we're going to have a big field as well, you know that speech as you as you launch uh, an address to a to party member one one fluff and you could blow it. So I think I mean David Cameron um, made that speech at Blackpool come with me, you know, he really sort of, he really won the hearts of that audience and the, the heart of the party, if you like. But actually, I think we had the mo, as they call it, um, coming into Blackpool, coming to our leadership. We, we, we sort of launched our leadership campaign, David's leadership campaign, coming into Blackpool. We thought we have nothing left. We only have 14 supporters, literally. And, um, and um, so we threw all our sort of time and, and the leftover money into a, a sort of fresh... Um, venue and and David gave a good speech and the pictures from that speech up against the the very old school committee room 14 it looked a bit stale I think that to me was the moment when I thought we have a final chance to turn this because we came up to Blackpool David had a lot of interest the momentum was with us and then that took him into that speech that David Davis was just talking about and he really sort of held the room but there was something else about that speech that I remember uh, being in the room at the time, Kate, and that was the no notes. It wasn't just it wasn't just he made this speech um, on the basis of uh, the fresh approach. It was it, it was a it, it was a complete sort of novelty in terms of how a party leader had made a speech, and it made it cut through. In, in a way, so it was both substance and style yes. that cut through very, very powerfully. I remember in Blackpool on that uh, on that day. And I, I, one of the things I remember is David Cameron not wearing a tie, which seemed extraordinary in British politics that someone was wearing a tie. Uh, while David Davis had women wearing T-shirts with "It's DD for me." Yes, uh, that on. was an unfortunate. What a contrast in terms of you know modernising that sort of thing, and sometimes. But the great thing about leadership contests, of course, we'll just get some great memorable moments. And I mentioned it a minute ago, but um, if we go back to 2016, uh, um, in that extraordinary year, we had all of the, the Michael Gove knifing Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson pulling out, an extraordinary moment and all that. But I think my favourite bit of that contest was this. What do we want? Let's Let's the leader. Leader. When are we want it? Now! What do we want? Let's Let's 
When do we want it? Now! Happy days, Henry Zephyr. <laughs> um, I can't really believe that happened. Um, <laughs> but but I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing relevant to this coming leadership contest is that at the front row of that, if I remember rightly, looking very embarrassed was Penny Mordant. Um, and now I think the role's reversed. And Andrea Ledsom is one of the key supporters, uh, soon to be unveiled, of uh, what do we want Mordant for leader? Um, so uh, there you go. Six years on, the, the, the band's back together, just perhaps not in that slightly strange way. Well, one of the things that Andrew Ledson might be advising Paddy Morden to do is uh, be careful what it is that you say to the papers. So when I was told by Sir Graham Brady that I was number two in the race, I said to him then, well, we need a short leadership campaign. We can't have a lack of um, leadership at this present time. And there was just no chance it was going to be a nine-week campaign. Theresa had two-thirds of all of the parliamentarians behind her, and so I felt it was the right thing to do in the national interest. So in spite of, you know, looking... With hindsight now, I think faced with those same facts, I would have made the same decision. And so on that list of, I suppose I should ask you, the interview you did with Rachel Sylvester, where you talked about how you, being a mother meant you had a stake in the future, and this was taken as a implied criticism of Theresa May. Was that part of your decision-making as well, the row over that? So I never have thought that. I never thought anything of the sort in fact the complete opposite and you know we all have an equal stake in our society and I mean for what it's worth I was extremely upset on behalf of all of those people who were wounded by that article and so if anything that would have been a reason to stay in the fight but it was very clearly trumped by the fact that there was a very real risk to our economy. Uh, that was uh, Angela Edison speaking to me on the Red Box podcast for when she re- ran again in 2019. I suppose the lesson of that um, episode, Henry, is don't say things to the papers which are the exact opposite of what you actually think. Yeah, and and in a, I think if I remember rightly, Costa Coffee and Milton Keynes yeah. when you're not accompanied by a press officer and who's taking their own recording of what you said. So what she actually, um, what she actually said was, genuinely, I feel that being a mum means you have a very real stake in the future of our country, a tangible stake. Uh, she went on to talk about how, uh, although Theresa May had niece, possibly has nieces, nephews, I have children who are going to have children who are directly a part of what happens next. And uh, she got very cross, demanded, said that the Times misquoted, demanded that they release the audio, which they did. Uh, and she pulled out um, uh, not long after. Interesting point. I just want to round up uh, with all of you. Um, somebody's texted in saying, uh, Richard says, on David Davis's point about favourites not winning, is it fair to say there isn't really a favourite this time around? Does that make a difference, do you think, in this contest, that there isn't an obvious uh, an obvious front run? I'll just come around to it. Or, uh, and who do you think might end up winning? Kate Ford. So I think I think that is right. There isn't an obvious favourite at, at, at the moment, but there is a sense that they need to sort this out sooner rather than later. And the one thing I would say is that when I was um, with David Cameron after the referendum, we thought, you know, before that, we thought we had three years, then we thought we had three months, and then we had three days. And these things can move very yeah. swiftly. And given the tension of the time, the, the, the war, the cost of living crisis, everything, it would not surprise me at all if, although we don't have a front runner, obviously, there isn't a sense of coming together, possibly under Rishi and Saj, were they to run together? Let's see. Interesting. What about you, Ian? You've, you've, you've seen a lot of these things up close over the years. Um, who, who, who do you think is the fact, who will end up emerging as the winner, do you think? 
Yeah, so as Kate says, you know, these things move incredibly quickly. The timescale is, you know, really less than two weeks now till the end of the parliamentary recess. One slip and you're out. You know, we've just heard that. It moves far, far, far too quickly. But, uh, you know, it's a very, very wide field. The person that's been out there talking to the membership, understanding the membership and doing very well with the membership has been Liz Truss. So I've got my eyes on Liz. Interesting stuff. Henry, whose campaign do you think might give us the Ledson for Leader March moment? <laughs> That'd be very cruel, but Suella Bravman. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, but if I can just say to, to, to the question you, you asked you ask the others, I mean, I, I find it very frustrating how people in Westminster do just like parrot conventional wisdom. And Boris Johnson was the favourite last time and he won by miles. So... I don't really understand why people still do the favourites never winning Conservative leadership elections thing. I'm also hopeful this time. I mean, obviously, you don't have a favoured outcome, but in terms of dispensing with silly phrases that people like to repeat and sound smart, um, I, people love to say, oh, he who wields the knife never wears the crown. So if Sajid Javid or Rishi Sunak win, um, then, you know, perhaps we'll finally be able to dispense with that one as well. Yeah, that one is particularly annoying. And actually, you know, he who doesn't wield the knife ends up looking like a wuss is, uh, you know, as David Miliband uh, <laughs> discovered. So that's an important, important one as well. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com